Our first reading this morning is taken from uh, the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 28. The Resurrection of Jesus. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has been raised from the dead. And indeed, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Our second reading this morning is taken from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We begin at verse 35. The resurrection body. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you do not sow the body that is to be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Not all flesh is alike, but there is one flesh for human beings, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are both heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one thing, and that of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. Indeed, star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. 
it is raised in power. It is sown a physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a physical body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is of heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so we made it. We have got through the dark days of winter and the dreary dankness and emerged into spring. And we have got through the long and heavy weeks of Lent and got to Easter. And for those of you who have been with us during Lent, we have made it through the seemingly interminable chapters of misery and despair in Lamentations with their refusal of hope and their embrace of misery. And we even got through the threat of confrontation and anger of Palm Sunday. And we've arrived at the peace and joy and celebration of Easter Day, the day when we can put it all behind us, when we can trust in that glorious new future and know that all our troubles are uh, ended, all the gloom is over, that as we have sung, this is our glad, triumphant day, hallelujah. The terrors now can no more appall us. It is Easter Day and good and light and life have triumphed and death and evil and suffering are defeated and have no more power and no more capacity. And of course, when we say it like that, it is nonsense. On a week when the mother of all bombs has been dropped and there's a certain amount of glee and delight in its capacity, and the people of East Africa are still lost in famine and it's not getting better anytime soon. And when, as we've heard, one of our own members is held in a detention centre in circumstances that are inhumane, when all of that and all the rest of it is still going on, then what does it mean to say that we believe in resurrection, that life has triumphed over death, that love is the meaning, that God is on the loose in the world? There was a survey a couple of weeks ago which caused great consternation when it was announced that I think it was a quarter of the people who say they're Christian believers also say they don't believe in the resurrection. Now, I think there are likely to be all kinds of complexities buried in that statement. But one of the things that I wanted to say back to the reporters and the questioners was that might depend what you mean by resurrection. If you mean simply a reanimated corpse got up and walked around in a backwater town in the far corner of the Roman Empire 2,000-ish years ago, and that's all there is to it, then I'm inclined to agree. I don't believe that that is a resurrection worthy of the name. There are other people whose stories mirror that, and we don't on the whole claim that they've changed the world, whatever we make of the stories. 
Even in our own gospel, we tell the, son of the, the story of the son of the widow of Nain, who was brought back from the dead. And the account makes it very clear that this is a powerful thing for his mother and for the community. But there's no claim that that resurrection changes our world. The calling of Lazarus out from the tomb might have been a marvellous event for the village, and it turned out to be a politically charged event because it led directly to the authorities plotting to get rid of Jesus once and for all. It even provided Jesus with a wonderful teaching moment when he confronted the grieving sisters. But it's not the resurrection that changes the world. The only resurrection that we make that claim for is the one that we proclaim today. That there is that in the account of this man being raised from the dead that changes the world, that remakes creation, that offers us life and hope and possibility. So why that one? And why in the face of all the reality that we live in and with and through, why do we continue to make this proclamation and to celebrate it? I'm going to offer two suggestions why this matters. Firstly, that what this resurrection, this raising of Jesus on the third day offers is the assertion and the demonstration and the call that death is not to be resisted, but to be overcome. So much of our energy and our effort goes into resisting death in all its forms, as we plodded our way through the grief and the horror of lamentations, and heard and experienced the contemporary echoes of that grief and that suffering, the loss and the despair, much of what we kept coming up against was the need and the longing to resist what was happening. To refuse suffering and death the right to destroy the city and the people and the world. And if we look at it simply as a historical document for a moment, what the people of the city wanted when they were faced with the horror of that attacking army, what the people under the bomb that was dropped this week what people caught up in any horror like this want, is for it not to happen. And so much of the despair and the terror comes from the powerlessness to stop the horror. And that was one of the words that we came up against a great deal as we journeyed through Lent, powerlessness. They were overwhelmed by something bigger and more terrible than they could imagine, and there was nothing that they could do to resist, and they did try. But even if we are not faced with that level of terror, and please God, we will not be, though I know that some of us have been. But even if we are not, yet we still know that sense of the need to resist what is threatening to overwhelm us and destroy us and take from us what we know as our life. So when things threaten our sense of stability and identity and position and presence in the world, the things that make us alive we resist. We do it when we become ill. It's not unknown even to resist knowing, because if we don't know, then it's not true. And how many of us have put off going to the doctor because we're afraid of what might be said? We resist the loss of a relationship, even when it's toxic and damaging us. We cling on because it's what we know. It is our life and our context. We're terrified when what we think we can do or offer is taken from us by a change of circumstance, a loss of job, or a growing recognition that we're not as able as we were, 
or a changing context that no longer needs our skills and gifts in the same way. Even a change that needs to happen for our own good and the good of others. Or a change in the way things are done, a change in how we relate, a change in where we invest our energy and our skills. Even sometimes a change in how our own way of seeing the world and of being in it. How many of us hold on to habits and ways of being, to addictions, physical, metaphorical, forms of understanding ourselves, that inner script we live by. We hold on to it because we're afraid to let go because we don't know what lies on the other side. And we find it hard to let go of the dependence and the definition and the action because it feels like death. And so we resist. We resist death in all its forms. We resist letting go of things and identities. We resist changing our perception of who we are and who other people are. We resist the very real death that happens every time our physical capacity diminishes. And the equally real death that comes with changes in perception of ourselves and our place in the world. Even the death that we experience when our social community, our country, our city, our church, changes from the way we have known it as new and different people come in and everything is different. And it's not all internal and metaphorical, this resistance to death. Sometimes it has the kind of consequences that we have seen on our own streets following the Westminster terror attack. We resist death by building up security and clamping down on movement, heightening the security measures and sending out the kind of advice that we received as churches sent out to public buildings about how we should keep our doors closed and not let in people that we don't know and narrow our boundaries to resist the threat of death. We resist and we put energy and ingenuity and skill and much, much care and anxiety into resisting the deaths, the many, small and large, and the ultimate experience of death that threatens us. And the resurrection is the proclamation that death is not to be resisted, but it is overcome. For in his undertaking of the cross, Jesus did not resist. And indeed, poor old Peter gets it wrong again when he tries to resist. And he strikes out with his sword that evening in the garden. And Jesus tells him off. And when Jesus is faced with false charges and with the mistreatment and the degradation and the pain, he does not resist. But today we proclaim he overcame He did not refuse death, but he went into it in all its reality. And those people who had lived with him and who mourned him did the same. They were in despair. They were not hopeful. They had tried to resist, even with swords, and they had lost. As we all must in the face of death, of whatever kind. We cannot resist it. It is too strong. And the love and the life of God does not save Jesus from it. But he trusted, and his friends discovered that while they could not resist, still death was overcome. Death may have succeeded, but its success was only provisional and penultimate. And death did all it could, and then God said no. And life was renewed, and Jesus is raised, and they met him, and we meet him. And that is the hope and the promise and the possibility. 
into that death and despair, not in denial of it and not preventing it, but into it and through it, God brought life. And he goes on doing it now. We cannot resist death, but death is overcome. Death's power is not as great as we are taught, as death tries to teach us. And we need to grasp this if we're going to make any sense of the resurrection. It's not that death is reversed. It's not that some kind of life force means death cannot happen. It's not that what we fear will not happen to us. It's not that there will be no suffering or loss or pain. But it is that is not the end. And the resurrection we claim and proclaim today is not a natural outcome of a stronger overcoming a weaker force. And it's not the wondrous and hopeful rebirth that is the coming of spring after winter. It is something new and beyond us and greater than us and a life and a love and a depth that we can barely begin to grasp. It's that life overcomes death and love overcomes hate and possibility overcomes impossibility in precisely those places where we didn't look for it and feared to ask for it. It is from death, not instead of death, that God brings life on this day of days. And so the deaths that threaten us, the deaths we resist with so much energy and fear, we can face them and we can allow them and we can meet them with the hope and the trust that while we cannot resist, still God's gift of life will overcome. It's not the easy way out, this approach. It's not choosing to refuse a simple answer. It's not a triumphalist approach that says it's all going to be fine and just like we've always known it, and just the same. And it's certainly not about avoiding struggle or distress or even change, including change we don't choose. The annoying thing about resurrection is that it comes after death, not instead of it. And we need to go through the death to get to it. It's when all is lost that resurrection appears, not in order to prevent all being lost. Jesus is not saved from death. Jesus is raised from death. And so death is defeated and overcome. It's not a resistance, it's a defeat. And that means we don't get to do what we so want to do. To refuse the things that threaten and kill and change who we are. Instead, we actually get to go headlong into them. In, as we say in the funeral service, the sure and certain hope of the resurrection on the other side. But it's not just the funeral service words. Because here's the second thing. This is not that old accusation of pie in the sky when we die by and by. This is absolutely not about supinely lying down in the face of evil and saying there's nothing we can do to resist evil or injustice or oppression. And it's not about giving in to our own weaker desires and inclinations and saying, well, it's just the way I am. There's no resisting it. The resurrection life that is free in the world now, that we are invited to take part in, to become part of, is not some kind of rarefied separation from the bomb that was dropped or the famine that ravages too many, too many lives, or our brother in prison. The life of God is not set free, as the theologian Mortman puts it, so that God can save his creation for heaven, but in order to renew the earth. Life overcomes death and calls us to, to live that life here and now. 
Love overcomes hate and calls to us. Joy overcomes fear and despair and calls to us so that we can live this life to be part of God's renewal and restoration and the coming of the kingdom. The risen Jesus did not meet his disciples in heaven. He doesn't take them from where they are and put them down somewhere else. He doesn't remove them from the complexity and the demand of living where they were. He met them in their here and now, right in the middle of it, in their fear and their pain and their grief and their loss. And he doesn't tell them to resist or to get over it or to leave it behind. He tells them and he shows them that he is for them and in them in the new life. That means they will live the truth and the reality of the kingdom of God in their world so that their world becomes different. And it becomes different not because they come up with the best plan to change it, and not because they compel other people to do things differently, or any of the good things that actually do emerge as a result of their encounter. There is much then, there is much since that has changed because we have come up with good plans and we have offered people new possibilities. But the difference is not because of that. That is the result of the difference. The changes that were made, that we make, are not the difference the resurrection makes. We do what we do to change things and overcome evil and live the new kingdom into being, not in order that the resurrection is active, but because the resurrection is active, because we dare to trust that life overcomes death, and so we no longer need to be frozen in terror. We are freed. Sometimes, for most of us, because we are frail and broken only for moments, or only in glimpses, but we are freed, and it is there in the depths, in the deepest part of ourselves. We are freed from fear and despair, the despair that can be awoken by so much of what we meet, so much that we discover in ourselves, but we are set free from its hold on us. We are set free from the need to resist what terrifies us, what we fear might destroy us. We no longer have to resist it because we can trust that it is overcome. And it's not a natural place to be because resurrection is not natural. It is the gift of God in that place which is hopeless, in that experience which is of total loss and the triumph of death. But when we do grasp it, or rather, when it grasps us, it is the coming of the new life that means we can face the deaths of the world and the deaths in our own soul without fear and live differently. We can live justly because our being, our identity, does not depend on the injustice of making others less than us. We can live peacefully, since our security ultimately does not depend on destroying anyone who threatens to destroy us. What can they take from us when the life that is the resurrection gift of God is given as a gift, not held on to as a right? We can live lovingly, because our capacity to love is not shaped by the need or distorted by the need to defend and resist against hate and indifference. But what can that do to us when the love we receive has overcome hate and fear? We can live self-sacrificingly because what can we give up that has not already been taken by the death that will come to us all and which is no longer a threat but simply a stage through which we pass into a life we have no words for, but which is given 
and which we do not need to protect. We can live to change things because we are not dependent on keeping things the same to protect ourselves. We can let go of power because who we are is not defined by what we do and we can entrust the most precious things in our lives into the hands of others because we don't need to resist them. For God's life has and will overcome any threat of death. And it is God's life, not ours. It is a life that is given, not generated by us. And so it will lead us into strange places. Go and I will meet you in Galilee. The seed that is sown doesn't look like the plant that grows. It will lead us into strange places and new and different things. And it won't be comfortable or sainted or neat and tidy. It will be wild and free. And that will mean messy and untidy and uncontrollable at times. And certainly unexpected and wonderful and winsome and demanding and challenging and overwhelming. They met Jesus that first Easter day, but not where they expected to. He wasn't safe in the tomb where they had left him. Nor was he easily contained and predictable. He kept going ahead of them, but he was alive and is alive and calls and invites us to the same life. Not a life of ease and security, not a life we can plan or order, not a life that prevents us getting hurt or frustrated or even damaged or killed, but a life that overcomes all that will kill. A life rooted in and gifted by the love of God. So here is a poem that lay at the root of my preparation this morning. Very short. So do not be dismayed by the brokenness of the world. All things break and all things will be mended. Not with time, as they say, but with intention. So go. Love intentionally extravagantly, unconditionally, for the broken world waits in darkness for the light that is in you.